Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who binge on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michelle in Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Listen to past episodes and sign up for our newsletter on our webpage at michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters to stay up to date on new episodes and bonus content. We're happy that Julia, the Max drama series inspired by the real-life Julia Child, America's first big culinary television celebrity, is back for a second season. Created by Daniel Goldfarb, Julia features a talented ensemble cast that includes Sarah Lancashire as Julia Child, David Hyde Pierce as Paul Child, B.B. Newworth plays close friend Avis DeVoto, Isabella Rossellini is Julia's cookbook collaborator, Simone Simca Beck, Christian Clemenson plays James Beard, Fiona Glascott is Julia's editor, Judith Jones, Robert Joy is WGBH general manager, Hunter Fox, Brittany Bradford is WGBH producer, Alice Naiman, Fran Krantz plays producer Russ Morash, and Judith Light is Alfred A. Knopf co-founder Blanche Knopf. With her trailblazing cooking show The French Chef up and running on air, Julia grapples with her rising celebrity and what that means for her, her colleagues, and her show. In season two, Julia and her devoted husband Paul return from Simca's home in France to find that her success has changed everything. Through her singular joie de vivre, she and her team must navigate WGBH, the White House, and a threat from their past while continuing to spearhead female-driven public television that confronts social issues still prevalent today. Janet Cam, who joined us in episode 12 of the podcast for a conversation about food memories in season one of Julia, is back for another conversation about Julia and women's personal and professional challenges in male-dominated spaces as the French chef and Julia Child star rise. Janet Cam was the co-founder of Le Pavillon, the first nouvelle cuisine restaurant in America. She is a recipient of the Wine Spectator's Grand Award and is included in Who's Who in America's Restaurants. Janet appears on various media platforms and conducts private and public wine tastings and wine dinners. From the daily pop and pour to the rare and the wonderful, Janet helps people define their personal wine preferences. Janet's presentations include wine tastings paired with Cantonese cuisine. Janet provides consulting services to restaurant and hospitality-related businesses, leading a collaborative process to build profitable ventures from the ground up and redevelop existing businesses into fresh, competitive operations. 
She also serves as a judge for the James Beard Foundation's prestigious culinary awards named for the chef and cookbook author James Beard, who's depicted in Julia. Whenever and wherever we dine with Janet, we come away with tasty bits of food and wine stories from her travels. So Janet, welcome back to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. This makes three. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you, especially to talk about food, and we always enjoy breaking bread. It's not always bread. It's a Sometimes it's of, rice, right? Sometimes it's rice. <laughs> exactly. Lifting rice from the bowl. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start with, um, I want to talk about, um, in some ways, how we met, because I know the the organization Les Dames de Scoffier was um, part of that familiarity. And you've been actively involved in the organization uh, for some time. What was the impetus for the creation of Les Dames de Scoffier, of which Julia Child was, quote, proud to be a member? What's your relationship with them today? And how is the mission elevating women in the culinary world today? Um, first of all, this was a group that was started by Carol Brock about 1973. And Carol Brock uh, was um, a food writer. Um, editor, uh, parent magazine, good housekeeping, etc., and just a fireball in New York. Um, and it was in direct response to uh, a, a dining, a professional dining group. It was uh, Les Amis de Scofet Society, and this is a an all male professional dining society, of which um, she was not admitted. So she decided to start her own. But more than that is, it was beyond a dining society. What this was done is to show what women can do. And so the three major programs that exist at this time uh, was one for agricultural outreach, and that outreaches into the community to help them cook, help them grow food. There's various members with various talents. Uh, the other one is mentoring, the legacy. Uh, one of which, one of the members is um, Carolyn Wente, who's now passed, but she created mentorship so that women can go on in the wine industry, beverage industry, and um, also in, in cooking. And then there is uh, the Global Culinary um, Initiative, of which um, I did a program uh, that was dumplings. Um, throughout uh, history, so along the Silk Road. And that was done with Amy Brandwine. So the crossroad, it started in China 3,200 years ago as actually a form of medicine. And uh, mm. the creator was actually a doctor. And the shape of it was uh, the ear of some of the uh, villagers. Um, they were freezing and they were starving. And so he used lamb, which the Chinese consider that heats your system. There is uh, an herb that is actually a mushroom called lingzi, of which I was recently prescribed for low energy. And uh, that was used also in this dumpling. And so the dumpling went across the Silk Road. And at the crossroad in Istanbul, Amy Riola took over and took it all the way to Venice. And that is the history of the dumpling. Um, so... 
we bring food and culture and history through that initiative. So there are three. Um, this has been a really rewarding, um, you know, participation. I've been an early member of which it was a fight. Um, it was in 1981 that um, the first um, of the 44 that now exist um, was in Washington, D.C. that was created. And I was shortly after that, that initial meeting. And the membership was primarily journalists and cookbook writers. And when someone recommended me, I found out later, um, there was a huge hue and cry uh, because I was the trade. Granted, mm. <laughs> this is Le Pavillon Restaurant. This is caters to the White House and the Monetary Fund and the National Gallery. But that was the prevailing idea. And um, eventually, um, uh, I was, you know, a member. And uh, because of my freedom and my contacts, it helped contribute to the growth of uh, the, um, the group. Because I was able to fundraise as a journalist. I don't think you could do that, nor do you have those kind of contacts that has the leverage to do that. And so all of us do our part uh, using our high card. And there is a, uh, a directory where you have the right and the privilege to call anybody. And so it's the girls bringing up the girls in the ladder. And uh, so there's a lot of mentoring. And I am so thrilled at the recent uh, group of women who've come into this. Um, you'll find them on the front of Cherry Bomb. Um, there's a whole young group and a, a new point of view and it's really diversified. And uh, it's just rich. It's just a really rich group of bonding and working together. And Julia Child being the grand dame, really. I mean, doesn't that say it? <laughs> And that's the Washington chapter because there are chapters all over the country and London, each one, uh, yeah, France, uh, Mexico. Uh, there was a, a recent trip that was created uh, to Oaxaca, um, and wow. to really deep dive into the food and the moles and the personalities that are there to uh, help educate everyone. Well, Janet, just in that story, you really hit on a number of themes that are in this season two of Julia. One being about women having to kind of fight their way into the industry uh, to be taken seriously, um, and also doing programming specifically for women. Uh, we have that in Alice Naiman and uh, the director who comes on staff to work with the French chef. Um, and then we have this tension between tradition and innovation that's represented by um, Semka, uh, Simone Beck, who's Julia's collaborator on the cookbooks Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and Semka's, you know, attitude as they go to Paul Bocuse Nouvelle Cuisine Restaurant and experience the loop en croute. Julia's just like thrilled and it's heavenly. And Simka's like, no butter, no sauce. This isn't cooking. You know, she's so we have this tension between tradition and innovation. And also uh, when Julia goes to her uh, cooking school in France, her professor says, well, tradition is also the foundation for innovation. It's not like we just reject the past, but we build on it. And uh, one of the things that Michonne discovered was that 
uh, scene that's depicted in the series is the fight that Julia, the conflict Julia and Simca have around Cassoulet. Uh, that Julia is clear that we are creating a cookbook for American cooks who are not going to run out and kill a goose or be able to find these ingredients. I want to, I think we should use chicken. And Simca's like, well, that's not cassoulet. So um, to riff a little bit on that um, theme, could you talk a little bit about, as someone who opened a Nouvelle Cuisine restaurant with uh, Chef Yannick Cam in D.C. at a time when traditional French cuisine was the standard, what were some of the reactions to introducing this culinary innovation at that time? It was a fight upstream like salmon. Um, what happened was... <laughs> I, I love met him. <laughs> I met Unique in his restaurant in New York. I was on, in quote, an unlimited expense account as a, a bottom rung executive for Levi Strauss. I was a designer and the first ever hired from the West Coast. So there's a lot of firsts in my life. So I'm used to breaking ground. So I took... a a friend uh, to dinner because I had met him uh, in a nightclub and it is um, Le Coupe It was the only neutral grounds for the, uh, no, Le Coupe was the restaurant of which his partners were uh, Countess uh, de Brant. This is Giscard Saint's sister-in-law. And this is where Jean-Georges Rangerichman's restaurant, Jojo's is now. It's a very lucky location. And it's on 64th and Lex. So um, I had an expense account and I was going there and I had met him. And uh, he said that it was his restaurant. I said, no, it's Countess of Bronze. I saw it in Gourmet Magazine. And he says, oh, I'm the partner. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, I remember the dish, in fact. Uh, the soup was a mussel soup. It was cream-based. And you could taste the layers inside. And if New Yorkers know the A table in the restaurant, Everyone looked at these two girls sitting in this banquette and said, who are they? And um, so that was my first taste. And uh, I remember one of the appetizers was 85 U.S. dollars. And this is in wow. the late 70s. So it was the cream of New York who went there and in Europe. And, you know, you can imagine the social set. So that was the first taste of Nouvelle Cuisine. In, in its sense, more classically based. So from the history of what Nouvelle Cuisine is, this is really the cuisine of the aristocracy. And what happened is, um, you know, after the revolution, uh, people lost their staffing. And so they had cooks that came from Spain. So the roux, that, uh, you know, binder of uh, flour and so forth, is based in Spanish cooking. And this covers inferior quality produce when you're away from the source, much like the Chinese in the interior of China, you see sauces, you see highly spiced foods, and they're away from the source of food. Whereas I'm Cantonese, I'm closer to the water and to the source. So in a sense, Nouvelle Cuisine is like Cantonese cuisine is using the best quality produce enhanced and it's healthy. Um, and uh, tradition abounded in the United States. So here it is. Everyone is doing 
you know, haute cuisine, which is Escoffier, who codified uh, what this cooking is um, so that everyone could reproduce it. And it was heavily sauced um, and it was a lot of fireworks, you know, the piece monte, you know, all of this showtime. So the showtime was different. Um, all of ours was on the plate and the reduction. Um, and what happened, this is clearly, clearly a moment. Um, not only did the customers come in like, what do you think you're serving? Baby food? This is the purees. Yannick didn't want to do beef. Well, I'm not doing beef. I said, you can't do that. There's lobbyists in Washington. You have to have beef. And uh, then there was uh, a moment during the summer where we went to a party in the Brandywine region. And this is Madam Street or Mrs. Street. She had um, a garden um, and she sold uh, herbs to uh, restaurants. They would arrive overnight in the box, clean bound and ribboned as little bouquets. So we went to the party and Georges Perrier was there. Georges Perrier is Le Becfin. This is the great restaurateur in Philadelphia. He was so angry about Nouvelle Cuisine, he was literally had to be pulled from, back from punching Yannick in the face. Then we were wow. at reception. Oh, oh yeah, that was Food physical. Bite. Yeah, he was angry. Uh, needless to say, he didn't know it, but I was in his dining room years later en route to Paris, and we stopped in uh, Philadelphia. And he, was, he had versions of Nouvelle Cuisine, but he didn't know how to do it. So it was classical. It was closer toward the beginning, probably, of uh, Ferdinand Point at La, La Pyramide or even, you know, La Mer Brésier. I mean, this is the, the beginning of what that was. So, you know, in historical is La Mer Brésier, then it's uh, Ferdinand Point of La Pyramide, and then you come to Bois Bocuse. And then from Bocuse, you have the newer generation, which Unique was part of. He did not work with Bocuse, but we were very familiar. So that's how that all started. And um, it was it was difficult. But it, um, isn't is plating part of it? Oh yes, it's a huge part of it. And um, so you that's know, a legacy. Um, Yes, there was a, a moment in time where you saw uh, Lamprea's uh, Maison Blanche in Paris doing tall food, and then you saw a New York restaurateur do that. But in essence, it's there is a, a composition to the plate, and there is a logic to it. And so when I look at plates, I know what the logic or illogical moment is for the chef when he's plating, and it has a movement, it has a direction. And when I train staff how to present the plate in front of someone, the fish is horizontal as if swimming. There's never anything pointed north to south. Oh, yeah. And then you look for it. And I come from an art background for this is easy for me. So for the staff, I used to draw pictures because sometimes dishes change in the middle of service, let alone change every day. Uh, so it was fun. <laughs> But uh, plating was a big part of it and um, wow. uh, dessert. So you saw the twill that uh, sort of looks like a taco shell. So that twill was a cookie shape. And uh, the draping of it over the champagne glass when they're formulating this in, in the restaurant and then how the sauce is formed. All of that has to do with chemistry. And Unique was a master of chemistry and understanding the weights and how to make a proper sauce 
and also how to innovate. He just had that level of uh, knowledge and experience to innovate. Mm. So impressive. So uh, the Casselet, we, <laughs> we were <laughs> the also classical. talking about the so these are two mindsets. The classical. This perfect. Um, this is perfect. The American and the European, if not French, mindset. The French, and there, there's a, I've read an article before I heard something that the country in which you come from also helps dictate your mindset. So the United States mm, is a boundless, yep. <laughs> open plains, open thinking, uh, innovation without you know, generations of families saying, you can't do that. <laughs> so for Simka to say that it's not cooking without food and fat, there's a certain understanding of that, but more than that is as a purist, she stood behind the, uh, the duck, the confit of duck, which is a different flavor. It's only in this time frame now that you see duck a little more often on menus. And that's still considered groundbreaking. Chicken is the basic, and I understand the thinking of, um, you know, Julia, who is American and pragmatic and get it done and get the best flavor you can from what's available. This is also true in other cuisines that come to the United States when you don't have, you know, those uh, items to cook with, the authentic, and even at that, terroir, how, you know, something is grown here as compared to, you know, the home country is affected by the soil and the taste. So still it will always be different, but it's not close. So um, I understand the difference. And I did make cassoulet from scratch with accepting with, now I thought about making the, the confit of duck and you have to start months early. Oh, you mean the goose? Yeah, goose. So I, of I goose. was doing confit de canard, which I bought from D'Artagnan. <laughs> But yeah, oh, it's, it's okay. Goose. So you even innovated the innovated. I yeah, exactly. Innovated the, from the but original. You have to think without that, going to butter. Exactly. So you have to think that they use what was outside their backyard, and how to preserve right, it, yeah. use it for later in the year. How to can, how to preserve, you know, how to pickle. So those dishes come from that segment, and we in America is like, okay, what's for dinner tonight? You know. And so there's a pragmatic level. Am I going to cook all day? Oh, I'll wait till the weekend. It's a project. You know, it's very, very different. And uh, although women didn't formally work, they worked as housewives, which is big work. And children, you know, the car in the garage, chicken in the pot, and three children. Pretty classic from that time frame. And yeah. um, the area from which um, Julia comes from in Pasadena, this is... Um, in quote, a privileged area. Um, there's uh, horseback riding and uh, Madeira is part of, you know, areas in this uh, location. There was San Marino, and then where I come from is Monterey Park. So I understood what that was. And also the beautiful, you know, weather all year long <laughs> and yes. those possibilities and the private schooling and, um, what I liked about Pasadena is the closest thing to the East Coast, and that's why I live here now. And forever in a day. Ah. Okay. So Julia and Simca were working on a cookbook. I mean, that's that's where the series starts. And 
Joya was really very attentive to the user of cookbooks, that these were American housewives. And as someone who owns over 100 cookbooks myself, and uh, who also has had the experience of having the smoke alarm go off trying to cook a duck, um, and, and you're looking towards developing a cookbook, so how do you evaluate cookbooks in terms of helping uh, folks like me, home cooks, uh, learn, um, you know, how to go beyond, you know, the, the thrown together dish and, and, and really cook. Do you, uh, what, what, what do you look for in terms of, uh, a cookbook that can be used by an everyday kind of person who wants to take it to another level? Um, <clears throat> I look and read at recipes every day. It's, it's kind of like my crossword puzzle. Um, what's important to me is technique. Um, inspiration comes from everywhere, and I certainly have my own ideas, having <clears throat> eaten in a number of places around the world and cooking myself. I enjoy cooking. And I often take a recipe and I'll change it. Um, I just look at like, okay, how long do you cook this? <laughs> you know, And then I'll do everything else around that. So in evaluating a cookbook and why I think mastering the art of French cooking is so important is um, French cooking has always been the basis of fine dining. And Julia wanted to bring it to America. This is also probably at the time, and for many businesses, the largest marketplace, the most open. Um, and even now, generationally, everyone's open and looking. And now it's on TikTok. It's, it's on a number of forums that you could find a recipe and how somebody cooks. Um, so in the Amen. beginning, yeah. uh, just as television and the book was breaking together, this is an incredible guide. What kind of pot do you use? Um, what kind of uh, oil do you use? How long do you let that oil sit before you put something in to get the sizzle? Um, I myself am still learning. Um, in Chinese cooking, the wok, you see things, but you don't really know why. <laughs> and I'm glad that I had that opportunity to see my grandmother and my mother cook. And so you heat the wok and then you drizzle the oil around the outside and it dribbles down and it heats it so that you have that contact and it's appropriate when you throw the food in and then you remove it and you throw the next one and then you combine it at the end. So Julia's book, well, it's long in a recipe, but there's no mistake <laughs> in what you're going to come out with. So the only mistake you can make is if you didn't buy good quality produce. And during that early period in time, good produce was not easy to get. I remember coming yeah. to Washington, D.C. in the late 70s and looking at people's uh, carts. And it was all this frozen and food and white bread and Coca-Cola. I mean, it was just a different palette. And so to find something and to develop the resources and to bring those resources to the restaurant to bring the resources to the table and for people to understand and want it. Um, when I moved to Pittsburgh for a short time, I heard people complain about the cost of Aure Cover um, in a supermarket. And I said, more for me. <laughs> you know, they didn't know what it was and they didn't want to pay a commodity <laughs> price. So Julia in the beginning had to use commodity product. That's what was available. And, uh, I think the only yeah. thing that was truly exotic was maybe white pepper. That was her thing. She didn't like to see the black specks in the food. 
and mm. black pepper prevailed. So I think that's the most exotic item. Yeah. It's interesting because she was um, importing French cuisine and in the same sense, French dining into America. And I heard someone say recently on uh, a YouTube, America's greatest export is culture. That's the thing we export the most. And in the series, Julia, we have James Beard. Uh, who comes to visit Julia and they're having this big party and his contribution is fried chicken. So you're one of the judges for the James Beard Food Awards. Tell us a little bit about James Beard's legacy in American food and how does fried chicken play in France these days? Um, James Beard actually dined in my restaurant. So I still have a copy of that menu that oh, was created oh. for me. Yeah, and... But I remember the wine. So it was uh, Louis Jadot Corton Pouget was his wine. And he came with his partner. Um, Yannick had cooked for him when he was ill in the hospital. So, you know, this is one of the first situations where food was not acceptable. You find it in, you know, uh, hospitals. Now, I think Sloan Kettering, you could order out, you know. But Yannick used to deliver food to James Beard when he was ill in the, the hospital. So um, it's the perfect symbol of American food, <laughs> fried chicken. Um, fried chicken actually uh, came to the United States through uh, the Scots. Originally, fried chicken showed up, um, I think, in a cookbook in 1747 with an English cook by the name of Hannah Glass. And the Scots apparently were the first to batter and fry chicken in a deep vat of fat. And so when the Scots came to the United States, they, they, you know, showed how, you know, to cook this uh, with the Black Americans who were doing a lot of the cooking uh, at the time. And um, I think it became a, a really great symbol and a unique one of food in America. Um, and actually, uh, I think the rest of the world is really very interested in uh, America, American culture, American food. And recently, a friend of mine, uh, in fact, as of yesterday, she told me that she had gone to a restaurant in Paris, and it's uh, the Golden Poppy in the Hotel La Fantasie on the 9th arrondissement. And um, she said she didn't understand the menu. It was Dominique Crenn, and Dominique Crenn is uh, the first woman chef in San Francisco to have Michelin three stars. So she opens this restaurant in the hotel, and um, my friend didn't understand the storyline. I said it was perfectly clear to me. It's California cuisine with uh, Asian touches and Latin American touches, and this is the microcosm of America, if not really you know, focused in, in California. So... Um, I think that uh, to bring these uh, our foods to another culture um, really uh, helps to expose uh, the broad range that cuisine can be. And so it makes perfect sense, fried chicken. I mean, I myself, every birthday I have fried chicken and champagne, whether I'm cooking it, which is rare, um, whether it's Popeye's or Colonel Sanders or, you know, the Korean or the Chinese fried chicken, but, you know, fried chicken's big. <laughs> And it goes, it travels well, you know, on the plane, you know, on the yes. train. On the train, on the bus, or, or <laughs> to the picnic. Know, the picnic, at the concert. 
Yeah. Like growing up for us, fried chicken was party food and picnic food. Special yeah. occasion food. I always yeah. say it's special occasion food. I agree. Janet. <laughs> yes. We? So we, we talked about your, your restaurant, which was, was a partnership. And um, in Julia, we have a partnership where Paul is involved in some sense in Julia's um, work. He does some of the testing. He builds her kitchen. He adjusts the, the counters and, and, and you know, does, does a whole lot behind the scenes. Even he's, I, I understood that he um, drew the pictures, the illustrations in the cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Um, Paul doesn't mind being in Julia's shadow, as we see in the series. And Simka's line is, how can you find your light when she's such a bright star? What qualities do you see in Paul that make him unique for that time when it comes to being the support of a woman who is the bright star? What women suffer from is confidence. And, uh, you know, there are thousands of years of subjugation. And so when you have a man who is so confident in himself that he supports his spouse, he married an equal, and that's huge. You know, he doesn't dominate her. He helps her rise to the level. And so in an earlier segment, I think they were, the first time she had French food was Dover Soul and a bistro that he liked. Yes. And he was thrilled that she met him on his plane of pleasure. They have an incredible, from what I could see and what I've read, um, an incredible romance. And so he's the one who figured out the organization. You know, he did that pegboard that's in the Smithsonian of her kitchen. He set that all up, right? Meanwhile, mm -hmm. he supported her because she was breaking ground and he felt what she was doing was really important. And so it's psychological, it's physical, uh, it's emotional. He was just there for her. And this is a great gift, an incredible gift. And for me personally, in relating to that, um, I knew because I'm both a numbers and a creative, um, that in the restaurant business, wine is what people will judge you by. Like, what's your price of Dom Perignon from one restaurant to the next? And they try to figure out your markup. If you're a friend or if you are, you know, my pocket first, you know, whatever it is. And so I figured out that wine was the important aspect in bringing Nouvelle Cuisine to the public. And so every Sunday we were invited to um, this uh, gentleman's home. He was a customer who became a friend and he was a Japanese dance, dentist. And um, he used to have Sunday afternoons open and opened his cellar. So you could pick anything you wanted. And this one time he had uh, 24 bottles brown bagged at the bar. And you had to guess what it was. Was it California or French? And Unique said to me, um, why don't you uh, participate? You have nothing to lose. I said, true, I don't know anything. And these men were like famous chefs, people who were published. They were all guys, chess beaters included. And so um, I went through all of it. And your nose will tell you 90% of what you need to know. That's how I came away with it. So I was the only one who got it entirely right. And that gave me the confidence 
to pursue this. And that is the profit margin in restaurants. And so when I do turnarounds, that's what I look at. And mm. there's a follow-up program to that. But until to this day, I'm very, very lucky as a gift from God, uh, blind tasting. What the guys like to do is shove a bottle of wine in your face, brown bagged. And guess what this is? This happened to me in Pittsburgh among great collectors who belong to the private clubs. And they knew my reputation. Some of them had been to the restaurant, so they wanted to see. And um, I was able to guess by deduction what that was. And, and, you know, in every situation, the guys will always test you to see what they, But you know what? If you turn that around, I think maybe only 2% will probably get it right. So that's the difference. And I think uh, that women um, have been gifted with this great nose and taste because you protect the tribe. We're the ones who give birth to the children. We protect the tribe. And I think that's part of the genetic makeup of women is the gift of smell and taste. And so women are really the great cooks. A chef really runs the business inside of like, there's each station and the brigade, and this is what Escoffier did. So he's credited for that, for organizing it that way, but taste, women. You've been enjoying Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast where we talk about historical drama series and films as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Share this podcast. Join our historical drama community by signing up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. Now, back to our podcast conversation. You've been involved as a groundbreaker. Julia was a groundbreaker. And in the series, we see women really fighting to break new ground in television, in publishing, in the academic world. Um, you know, Alice is trying to come up with programming that speaks to women's issues and not another knitting show. Or you have a woman who is a director who's come over from, um, you know, Edward Merrill's shop uh, in on the West Coast, you know, big time journalism. Um, and you work as a wine and restaurant consultant. Um, and what are some of the challenges for women in your industry today? And what battles are women still fighting? Because as you noted, you know, when Les Dames started, that was also a breakthrough organization. It was women fighting to have space in what were pretty much male dominated spaces. Um, for me personally, it's been an asset to be a double minority, Chinese and, uh, a woman because they don't know what to do with you. So you make the rules and you do it quickly. And that comes from confidence is what I, I bring up. And that's why when a man supports you uh, or your, your partner or you know, uh, a colleague, um, that's helpful because it's like, it's your cheerleader because it's difficult to cheer for yourself because you sound like you're bragging. So um, I think the last time that I really felt that was the turnaround blue test. Um, I was really courted. I didn't want to be in the business again. I had already, um, you know, uh, closed up Le Pavillon and that life. 
and was looking for the next thing. And everyone said I needed to do that to be back in the game again. And, you know, I, I thought of it as a challenge. And the challenge is, is it his name and his work alone, or do I have a reputation and something to contribute? And I found that I did. And part of it is the Rolodex that I developed. It said that, you know, when you leave the restaurant business, your name is dead in six months. My name is still alive now. Uh, I'm surprised. (laughs) When I go, I know who you are, (laughs) that kind of a thing. So um, I think that all of this is important for women to believe in themselves, number one, to have a point of view and to listen well. Um, in terms of patriarchy and, uh, about Julia, uh, working better with men as peers than women, I understand that because what happened with women is you need to be friends. You need to do this. You need to do that. And with a male, just tell them what to do. That's all they want to hear. And, um, I have a meditation group that, you know, is, uh, extends way into the past and is about women and warriors. And um, you don't have to like somebody, you just need to get along to get the job done. And I think that is huge for women to work together instead of backstabbing, of which it had happened to me. Um, but you have to be aware that it might be a possibility and be able to read body language and to know how to, I think, express yourself diplomatically till you cannot be diplomatic and be forthright, and um, also look at the culture of your workplace. Look at how you present yourself physically. Usually someone judges you within three seconds by what you're wearing and what you look like. That's true. And uh, Yeah. And so you need to look at the culture. Um, You can't go in looking like a cocktail dress and you want to be partner in a law firm. Just doesn't happen. And so there are rules that are unspoken, and I think women need to look at this. Also, color. So if you look at Nancy Reagan wearing red, it's like the Queen of England. You wear the color so that you are identified in the crowd. And there's a reason for that. And so now you see women wearing sleeveless sheaths as a power, you know, or or pantsuit as a power mode. Uh, When I first started, women were wearing Brooks Brothers for women with little string ties at the neck as a, a yes you know, yes and yes looking like the cult of the ugly excuse me we have power we're women stand up to your own power yeah and julia did so jenna she did for sure janet i follow you on instagram and um i'm always intrigued by your travels and i think recently you were in the south of france and i last time we um dined with you, you had just come back from Paris. So could you tell our uh, community a little bit about what's the difference between the food you find in Provence and the food you find in Paris? There's a difference in temperature, you know, the lifestyle, decontract, as it's word. So my first time in Provence was actually as a house guest of Richard Olney. So Richard Olney is, you know, a, a great writer um, of cookbooks. He was, I think, the inspiration, if not partnering with um, Alice Waters. 
in her restaurant, Chez Panisse. And the wine list was done by Kermit Lynch. And Kermit Lynch is one of the importers, I think the first importer I knew of who had a bricks and mortar you know, store that was walking distance <laughs> to Chez Panisse, but actually had like Fanny right there. That It was named after Alice's Water as uh, a little cafe. So um, I was a guest um, in his uh, home, uh, along with Dorothy Kahn, who was the founder of the French Culinary Institute in New York, of which hired retired chefs and chefs to teach. So you got the DNA going through the new people. And so um, Richard Only was a customer of mine. His, he used to come to uh, Washington, D.C. to visit his sister and to his dentist. So uh, being in his home uh, was very relaxed. I brought a loaf of bread that I found at the airport, like, what do I take? <laughs> you know? And he immediately looked, he says, oh, Poilene, this is the best bread. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, From the uh, airport? Yes. I was found at the airport. I said, I've got to take something. I was like, and I, fresh bread, you know, taken to the interior. So he says, oh, Poilene, the best. I said, okay. <laughs> and um, so the chicken was a spatchcock chicken. And he said, is Krug champagne okay? I said, oh, yes, Richard, yes. And then he says, oh, would you like to meet Kermit Lynch? And so that's how that all began. And through Kermit, I got the rarest wine. And uh, that's a good story in itself because it's what the family drinks of Comte Lafont, and it's like half a hectare as uh, Mirceau Desiree. And uh, so as, as relationships go, um, he says, I'll, you and everybody else wants this wine. Only six bottles come in the United States. And so he sent Dominique wow. Lafont mm -hmm. to the restaurant. Yannick and I never sit down. We sat down at lunch. And Dominique said, after lunch, you can have any amount you want. That's how we got the rare and the wonderful. And so, you know, going back to Provence, so um, much of what I do is wine focused because that is the profit margin for restaurants and my consulting. So I was pouring um, for um, uh, professionals. This is uh, a group uh, from France, and um, I had 35 wines from Provence in front of me. So they were all rosé. And then there were different tables of other wines around. And I tasted every single one of them. Of course, you taste and spit. And I thought, oh, my God, there's hardly a difference. It's a lifestyle wine. You sit by the pool, you sit outside, you drink this, you don't get drunk, put an ice cube in it. It's, it's a fabulous wine and it's very pretty to look at and it reflects the sun. Right? <laughs> so in fact, I had MW come in front of me and I watched her while she was tasting because she was speaking on Provence. And I said, let me tell you some family stories behind some of these wines. That was it. So, um, but wines in Provence are very relaxed and, um, there, some of the grape varieties cross over to what we normally look at, but um, the wine that was special to me and the uh, food item was, I had a true bouillabaisse in Marseille, and by true, um, one of my friends is um, a professor of medieval French poetry and uh, fluent and speaks Occitan, and so she chose the restaurant, and I chose the wine. It was cassis, it's a white wine. And the first one I ever had was actually by Kermit Lynch importing it. 
And so you have a very relaxed lifestyle. It reflects everything, uh, the sunlight, you know, the slow movement. I mean, if you look at the South here, when I was with Levi Strauss, I would call up and they said, oh, we have a break. We're having a Coca-Cola break. We'll call you after. (laughs) So um, in the North, which is usually industrial, um, so you have Paris. And there's the competition of a world-class city. And so you do everything to do that. It's the interior, it's the food, it's the construction of the food, it's the right, uh, you know, items that you're using. Whose caviar are you using? What is the hottest item at a certain point in time is a kiwi fruit. So you have to have the hippest, the most, you know, precise food. And so that is the difference. Uh, there's also a price difference when you pay for that structure and that learning um, you know, in Paris, of the grand restaurants, you start about 10 to 13 years old and you do the stage. You have to make the decision from formal schooling to go modern or you go uh, classical or you go, you know, into another direction. And so my ex-husband, you know, at 13 decided or his grandmother helped him decide what he was going to do. And so he um, did his internship or his stage with uh, the only two-star outside of Paris at the time, and it was Monsieur Ladomge, and that's how he learned the business. And the man stayed beyond his retirement to make sure he completed his uh, learning period, his stage. So it's totally different. You dress differently for the occasion, you eat differently for the occasion, and the expectations are different, the wine lists are different. It's two different things. And both are fabulous. <laughs> if if we were like um, Taquina and I have dreams of traveling again, <laughs> again, <laughs> and if we were go- planning a trip to Provence, what is it that we just could not miss? I mean, should we pop by Julia's old, Julia and Paul's old place? Um, what what is the can't miss, and what are the can't Okay, uh, Julia's foods. home in Provence. I wanted to rent when it first when she first passed away. It was for rent, and oh, great B and B. Well, it's since been purchased as a cooking school. It's a bloody fortune, but it's a cooking school, and I'm sure it really references what she does. For me, if I'm going to Provence, I go to the farmers market. Mm. Uh, they, <laughs> that's where you find real food. You find the cheeses that are local to the area that you see nowhere else. Um, when I was in Mirceau, um, there I went to the farmer's market. That's just my idea of a good time is going to farmer's markets. Um, uh, there were six different types of chickens running around. And then they cook some of these things. And so you, have, you could have like a lunch that is two pieces of uh, a drumstick, two drumsticks, and the potatoes that are in a flat pan, much like a paella pan, that's cooking in chicken fat. And it's cooking in mm, long time. Mm. I put this into a little paper bag and that thing was two euros and you couldn't finish it. It was just fabulous. The cost of food in France is so much less than it is here and it's real. And they protect the uh, quality of the food that is not you know, using hormones or anything. So, you know, that's really pure. And I think that also affects our weight. 
and you know the desires for food you're you know you're satiated by the food you eat in france and you eat very little and it's high quality and here it's a little bit different and you have to be careful and particular and discerning about what you eat and where you eat so in france that's what i would do um there is the classical restaurant uh l'estale de beaumaniere which is part of the beginning of nouvelle cuisine i've never been but it retains three stars and paul bocuse in lyon um, I finally went to, um, even though I sat next to him at dinner, <laughs> uh, at one point, um, but, um, it has only two stars and Michelin stars are granted once a restaurant, it used to be, you had to be in business for 10 years and every so often unbeknownst to anyone, the Michelin, you know, would show up and you would never know. And after 10 years, then they would grant a star or not. And the first star is worth a stop. Um, the second star, it's a nice place and the food's really good as well. Third star essentially means you've put in a million dollars. Everything is monogrammed, fine linen, fine everything. And uh, when I did my restaurant, I centered it with a lolly crystal table. And we built the restaurant around that table so that you knew when you came, it was special. And all the silver was made by VRMA, and they are the people who made silver for crystal. Uh, we had mm. crystal bases on the table. So in that way, we did that before Michelin was in the United States, before, you know, Goemio, you know, was, uh, you know, registered, registering, you know, fine dining in the United States. So, you know, there's an evolution. But if you want to see for historical reasons, that's where you go. But I would just count on your nose to take you where you should go. You could read the books, but you know, that's someone's opinion, but I think the markets are unbelievable and that's where you get real food. And in Paris, I think I'll be that's good. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And in Paris, um, yeah, I, I've, I've gone. Yeah. I will spend when it's really worth it. And so I think the middle level tends to be expensive. It's the mom and pop place or the true high level and the true high level you must be very discerning because some people charge because they think they should charge that, but they don't necessarily produce what is worthy of that. So the one restaurant that's on my list is actually a vegetarian restaurant in Paris when I'll be there in April. I'm going for studies in Champagne, but we will have time in Paris. And it's Arpege. I've got, tried for many years and now he's doing only uh, vegetables and I'm thrilled. Well, Janet, I'm so glad that you joined us again for the third time on the podcast because we get so many tips from you and, and just how to appreciate food. And of course, we all and wine and wine. And also, um, we all we love Julia, the series and Julia Child. And we grew up on, you know, the WGBH, the French Chef series um, when it was on. So it's always fun to talk about this with you and and just continue to cook and follow our nose to get something tasty to eat and um yeah please bring us back some chocolates <laughs> i will because Her i usual. found <laughs> the next time we eat together i will bring you some incredible chocolate from atlanta okay yeah, and then okay. this baker i found <laughs> Season two of Julia is streaming on Max. 
Season 1 of Julia is also available on Max. Please note, fees may apply. We invite you to share this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters with someone you know who would enjoy the conversation. Subscribe to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters and enjoy past episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Visit our website at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information and where you can purchase copies of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, My Life in France, and other books, including cookbooks related to this and other podcast episodes. You can find our past conversations with Janet Cam, including episode 12, What We Love About Julia, and the bonus episode for the 40th anniversary of the 1981 series adaptation of Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. You can write us at podcast at michonbostongroup.com. Like and share historical drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who binge on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.